Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, it's Drags. It's Wednesday, January 29th. Time for episode 335 of Patriots Beat on the CLNS Media Network. Find us at clnsmedia.com. And as always, follow us on Twitter at PatriotsCLNS. Welcoming back old friend Evan Lazar of CLNS Media covering the Patriots and the NFL this week before Super Bowl 54. Find him on Twitter at E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R. What are you doing this week instead of blogging and writing from Miami Beach since the Patriots aren't there, buddy? I know. They didn't hold up that end of the bargain. I was actually just thinking about how a year ago this time we were all in Atlanta enjoying ourselves and getting ready for Super Bowl, was it 53 at the time, and uh, how kind of disappointing it is that we're not there this time. And uh, all the other news that's going on in Patriot land, it just doesn't seem to be boring at any point in time, even at this truly dead point of the offseason right now. Well, you made reference to it. Breaking news uh, on Tuesday afternoon. Christian Fourier of WEEI was on it first. Phil Perry had it also, as did Mike Reese. Dante Scarnecchia is retiring once again. Of course, uh, Patriot fans recall that uh, he retired after the uh, 2013 season. Dave DiGiulio, uh was his replacement, and then uh, uh, Scar came back uh, two years later and has been the offensive line ever since. That is, ever since up until Tuesday when he stepped away. Uh, he will turn 72 on Valentine's Day. So this time I think it's for good, don't you think? Yeah, you know, it's a sad day for the Patriots, for Patriots fans to see one of the pillars of this dynasty, really, what do you want to call it, a pillar, you know, piece or Mount Rushmore piece or however you want to phrase it, Dante Scarnecchia over the last 20 years, not only from building this offensive line on the practice fields, in-game adjustments, game planning, scouting draft prospects and getting guys in from pro and draft uh, avenues to come in here and block for Tom Brady and the running backs. He encompassed all of it, and he did it at probably the best level that we've ever seen the offensive line coached. There's just so many different examples of what makes him so great. His offensive line coaching points, which I put in my column today about Skarnekia, are about as instrumental in kind of just the Ten Commandments of offensive line play across all different types of wakes of coaches and levels of football. It's really one of those moments where, you know, he's not quite as recognizable to people in the national me- media or, or the national landscape 
as a head coach, you know, as a Bill Belichick, certainly, or even any head coach. But in terms of position coaches and assistants go, they don't make them any better than Skarnecchia, and they don't make them any more important than Dante Skarnecchia either. Okay, how big of a factor do you think this plays in Tom Brady returning to the Patriots, if at all? I don't know if it plays that big of a factor in it. I mean, obviously... Tom Brady is going to want the best protection possible. He's going to want the best coaching possible. But if he had left and gone someplace else, he wasn't going to have Dante Skarnecchia either. You know, so I, I don't, yeah. I don't know if it's really going to matter that much to him one way or the other. Now everybody remembers 2015. I think more so than 2014, they did win the Super Bowl without Skarnecchia in 2014. 2015, we all remember the disaster in Denver in the AFC Championship game. It's disappointing to see him go in any type of facet of way that you look at it. Obviously, a well-deserved retirement. I personally think he's not going to get in as a modern-era finalist. He's not going to get in as same way that a player or a head coach would get in. But as a contributor to the game, I think Dante Skarnecchia has a very good case to be made that he belongs in Canton in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He certainly belongs in the Patriots Hall of Fame. But uh, I don't know how much it really impacts... Brady's decision per se. I don't know how much it really affects the Patriots moving forward. I, it makes it interesting, though, with guys like Joe Tooney and Ted Karras, how many new spots and new players do you want to be putting into spots along the offensive line in the first year of this transition? I thought you had a great uh, tweet about Scar and the way he uh, practiced. And he did yeah. not he, – he was always somebody – who kept it simple in practice. He hated complex drills. Why is that? Yeah, you know, he didn't want to do any of the fancy stuff. I think that one of the things that players pointed to, for example, is a, a lot of coaches, or not, I, I shouldn't say that. I, I don't know for sure, but one way of looking at it is that, you know, you go into it and you go directly to some of the things that you're going to do in the game, like executing a combination block, for instance, where they double team at the point of attack and then one of the linemen come off that block and climb to the linebacker at the second level. Things like that are a little bit more advanced. You can't just build up to that on day one, right? You can't just go right into day one of training camp and start throwing out combination blocks. So what Skarnecchia would do was he would teach the first steps of that block, you know, the block at the point of attack, the footwork out of the stance, the hand placement, all those little kind of beginning steps. And then he would build up like a house, a foundation. He'd build a foundation of fundamentals and he drilled that fundamental into his players. And then he built on that a foundation and went from there to the more complex stuff. So I think that every single year when the offensive line got in there, they started from square one, and they started with the fundamentals, and Skarnecchia had some key fundamentals that he stressed in certain situations with certain blocks and certain uh, types of different blocking schemes. And uh, he really preached what he believed in, and he was consistent and thorough throughout his entire career. And I think that those two things, consistency and repetition, basically sum up Dante Skarnecchia in a nutshell the repetition of doing the same drills day in and day out and we see this down at practice even during the season when they give us that extra five minutes or so just to watch positional drills it's always the same drills for the offensive line they're running through the same kind of gauntlet of of positional drills of warm-up drills and they're building those fundamentals and building the the repetition of building a, a core kind of just structure to their blocking system so I think that that's really the things that he did 
a lot of people talk about, you know, him watching tape and him being able to fix people and build people up like a Trent Brown, for example, where he just completely fixes some of the issues that he's having and turns, turns him into a pro bowler. That's definitely the case. And that's definitely a part of his legacy. But I think that mainly it's that kind of foundational level one type stuff that he's so good at teaching and so good at getting his guys to do it the way that he wants them to do it, that that's where it all starts. I got to tell you, Evan, uh, one of the best impressions I ever got of uh, Scar was not in Foxborough even. It was at Boston College uh, last, uh, whatever, March, March of 2019 uh, during BC's Pro Day, and he shows up and there were, I think, two or three offensive linemen who were there uh, who were potential uh, candidates for the draft. And to see the way he worked on their uh, fundamentals in pass blocking and in run blocking and the way he worked with them individually and as a group uh, impressed me. And, and he obviously loved his craft and he loved teaching the fundamentals of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that you brought that up because when he took his first hiatus, the two-year hiatus, he did stay on in kind of a part-time scout advisor type of role where he wasn't as involved, obviously, as he would have been when he was coaching, but he was still on the circuit on pro day. He went to certain offensive linemen. He was part of their private workouts with the offensive linemen, too, that they had in at Gillette Stadium and all kind of different things about the draft. And he was giving his opinions on the draft prospects. So I don't know if he's going to do that this time around. We haven't heard that much information, but I do wonder if he is going to be involved in some of the scouting elements, because I think that a lot of coaches, Belich and Skarnecchia certainly include, like you just mentioned, love that part of the game. They love finding developing, creating in a lot of ways the next generation, next player, the next stud, the next guy that's going to start on the offensive line and the next draft. And I think that that's kind of the exciting part of the game in many ways. Now, the grind of the game is during the season when you're game planning for opponents and when you're coaching during the week and you're working these long hours and you got six seven days a week of work and oh that's the grind right but the fun part of it is going to pro days it's going into the film room and watching draft prospects or and things like that and belichick certainly loves the game planning element of it too during the season but i, I wonder if skarnickia will continue on in some sort of an advisor uh part-time scout type role like he did the first time who is cole popovich could he be a candidate to replace him well, Cole Popovich, for, since 2015, really since Skarnicka came back, has been working as an offensive assistant on that side of the ball under Josh McDaniels and Skarnicka. He's worked with the offensive line for three years, 2015 through 2018. This past year, he went and worked under Ivan Fears with the running backs. Now, that's pretty common. And when you think about it, the running backs and the offensive line are obviously in unison, right? That's a very cohesive kind of relationship there. So he went to the offensive line for three seasons. He worked under Skarnekia, learned his ways, hopefully kind of was a mentor, uh, so to speak, to Cole Popovich. And then Popovich moved on to the running backs, got mentored by Ivan Fears, and then kind of just gets to see the game and see the running game in particular from that sort of perspective. Because remember, McDaniel's the offensive coordinator. He's obviously a big part of the creative mind that is the Patriots offense. But Dante Skarnekia is a huge part of their running game. He's not he doesn't have the label of run game coordinator, but he's basically 
basically their run game coordinator. He designs all of their short yardage and goal line type of runs along with Ivan Fears. So that's a big part of the kind of offensive lineman offensive line coach's job is to be able to understand the running game and, and the different angles and things like that. So I think Cole Popovich and getting cross-trained on the offensive side of the ball is no mistake. It's something that Belichick really likes to do. He likes to even flip coaches every once in a while from offense to defense to get a different perspective on how to attack things. So this is very common with the Patriots coaching staff to kind of move around the staff and learn different positions and get experience coaching different positions to see the game through a different angle or through a different lens. So I think that Popovich might be the favorite to get this job just because of his experience in the system and he's been here for a few years now. Uh, but there are some other in-house candidates who I'm sure we'll talk about that have a chance at it as well. Okay, such as I'm going to throw out a couple of names uh, here, um, Evan, and see what you think. Carmen Brasillo, uh, Nick Cayley, who worked with the tight ends, uh, Ivan Fears, obviously, and uh, um, of those three, uh, could you see any one of them uh, giving Cole Popovich a run for his money if the Patriots and Belichick uh, go internal? Yeah, Brasillo is the guy, right? He's the guy that they brought in from Youngstown State. He was nine seasons at Youngstown State as their offensive line coach. They brought him in for this past year to be the assistant offensive line coach under Skarnecchia. They obviously really like the guy. He's well, very well thought of within the building as well in particular. And I know some Patriots fans are hot and cold on Marshall Newhouse, but he was the guy that really was working in the trenches with Marshall Newhouse before and after practice to get him up to speed to be able to play left tackle, you know, 70 snaps a game like Newhouse ended up having to do for half the season. So Brasilio gets a lot of credit for that because Skarnecki, of course, needs to worry about the big picture of the entire offensive line group and doesn't necessarily have the time to single out one guy uh, before and after practice as much as an assistant to an assistant coach would like a Brasilio. So they brought him in from Youngstown State. I think he's a very qualified person for this position. It does sound like, and I, you know, this is not set in stone or anything like that, but it does sound like the Patriots already have a guy in mind to replace Skarnecchia. I don't think that this is at all a surprise to Bill Belichick. I think that Skarnecchia has kind of been year to year since his return from retirement in 2015 or 2016, excuse me. And I, I think that they've kind of been grooming people like Popovich and then bringing Brasillo this year into the staff to take over for Skarnecchia because obviously we knew that this day of him retiring for good was not that far off and him coming back was kind of him just hit, hitting one last second win. So I think Priscilla has a really good chance of getting it. I think Popovich is still my leader in the clubhouse right now, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if they named Carmen Basillo instead. Uh, it is kind of funny uh, that his last name is Popovich. And I remember last year, maybe it was last year, the year before that, Julian Edelman, I think it was last year, Julian Edelman was praising the assistant coaches on the offensive side of the ball. And he threw some names out there that surprised some people. One of them was Nick Casario's name. And that's kind of what opened up the rabbit hole of what exactly is Nick Casario doing. The other one was Cole Popovich. And Cole Popovich's name was brought up in that kind of answer by Edelman for the first time. And people started to dig into his background and figure out who uh, he was and, and what his situation was. And he is, I think, another one. And we hear about this all the time with the Patriots. But it really does hold true to a lot of the guys that we talk about. You know, Popovich is another one of those guys that a lot of people think is a rising star within the organization. 
I think that they're grooming him by moving him around from O-line to running backs uh, to maybe back to O-line. They're grooming him for being an offensive coordinator someday, I would say. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if, if they actually move him again at some point. If he doesn't become the offensive line coach, maybe he goes over to receivers or, or something like that, because that's usually what you do to kind of build the resume to become an offensive coordinator is you learn the entire offense and the whole offensive side of the ball, and then eventually you work your way up. You know, McDaniel started on defense, but he went to quarterbacks, and then he went to, uh, you know, uh, offensive coordinator. So he worked his way around the staff too and then Patricia same thing to get to his coordinator position and so on and so forth. Speaking with Evan Lazar talking all things Patriots and the NFL for CLNS Media and clnsmedia.com find him on Twitter at E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R Hey guys just because she said she didn't want anything for Valentine's Day doesn't mean she doesn't deserve anything but you think what do I do I've got the perfect solution for you it's something that is beautiful and classy and incredibly easy and convenient. It's called Books. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com. Go to Books dot com. Here's what I love about Books. Their website is classy and beautiful. It's easy to navigate. They work directly with eco-friendly farms. My fiance Jeannie has used them many times to send flowers to sick friends or for congratulations or birthdays. And every time she gets calls about how beautiful the flowers are and how long they last. Well, her experience was so great. You know what, Evan? I figured, what's a great way to get in with Jeannie? Get books for Jeannie. And that's what I did, and she could not have been more thrilled, so happy. And we have two pairs of books, bouquets, in our kitchen right now. As a matter of fact, after I finish this podcast and uh, go down for a meal, I'm going to sit down in front of the books and admire them and say to Jeannie, Evan, aren't I brilliant? Books is a great advertiser of Patriots Beat, a loyal supporter, and now I've got a deal for you. Bloom starting at $39, available at books.com. Go to books.com, and I've got an even better deal for you. Go to books.com and use our promo code BEAT. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com slash BEAT, B-E-A-T, and receive 25% off your order from the Books Company. Go to books.com slash beat and get 25% off your order. Back with Evan Lazar talking all things Patriots and the NFL for CLNS Media and clnsmedia.com. Some other news from Tuesday. Bill O'Brien and Jack Easterby in Houston. How about Billy O'B finally getting what he'd wanted all the time? Now he's the general manager and head coach of the Texans. And Jack Easterby was named uh, president of football uh, personnel, director of first football personnel ops. Uh, very similar now to the situation Bill Belichick and Nick Casario have with the Patriots. Can the Texans pull it off? This is one of the more kind of un you know, this has been a long time coming, right? I think there's been a lot of rumbles that Bill O'Brien, if he wasn't going to take it by title and be technically called the GM, he was the guy pulling the trigger in Houston. He was the guy with his hands on the, on the controls. 
and he finally gets the title, you know, officially gets the title publicly, and he's now the general manager. This is as big of a power grab as you've seen in the NFL over the last, uh, you know, couple of years here, where O'Brien, a coach that has won a couple of playoff games for Houston, but hasn't won any, hasn't appeared in any championship games, hasn't won any Super Bowls, nothing like that, has completely grabbed control of the horns there in Houston and with the Texans. And I think that their owner, I, I personally think that the Bob McNair and the Texans organization just is prepared to be competitive and be an exciting product on the field. And with Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins and Bill O'Brien, at least making them competitive every year and getting them into the playoffs every season and getting them into the dance, that's what they're kind of looking for. Now, obviously, every organization wants to win a Super Bowl. I'm not saying they don't want to win at all. I'm just saying that I think that they're very content with it's kind of what Bill O'Brien has put out there for them over the last several years, and they're very, very content with just winning the AFC South and getting a, fight, a chance to, in the fight of the playoffs. And, and Bill O'Brien, you know, kudos to him. This was a power struggle. He pushed a lot of people out that have been with the organization for a long time, really some people that have been with the Houston Texans since they kind of became a franchise. You know, and he's been able to outlast all of them and uh, so uh, supersede all of them, too. And this was just a long time coming with this official announcement. And obviously we can get into what it means uh, for Nick Casario and the Patriots. But this was Bill O'Brien's plan A all along. And now he gets full control, gets to pick the groceries in Houston as well. Well, it means Nick Casario staying put, right? I mean, I, that would be the logical conclusion. Where else would he be going at this point of the off season? Right, so his contract doesn't expire to the end of the draft. So he's signed with the Patriots through the 2020 draft, and he has that non-compete or something like that in his contract that led to the grievance and the issues with the Texans the first time around in the first place. So all those things are still in place through the 2020 draft. So a team after the draft, and this does happen, believe it or not, because it, for whatever reason, teams will fire their GMs after the draft it's it's bananas to me that you would let a gm a lame duck gm the guy that you're going to fire pick your draft picks for an entire draft uh, class but that's the world we live in at times with the but nfl if, yeah i'm going to cut you off if you're a team that figures they're two to three years away anyway uh from really competing for uh, a super bowl berth at the very least um you're willing to make that exchange that let one guy pick your draft for the possibility of having the guy you really want uh, pick, you know, the next three to four to five to six drafts. That's yeah, the whole absolutely. idea. Right. And that's the thought process. And that's the potential is that when that contract for Casario expires after the 2020 draft, there is definitely still a chance, I would say. And I don't know any teams necessarily that are thinking this this way, but there's always a chance that a team will fire their GM that they currently have in place and open the door to hire a guy like Casario to replace that general manager. And, uh, you know, really kind of just goes to show that this is always an ever, you know, evolving process and things can always change in a hurry, but it does point to Casario coming back next season for the Patriots. And I think the biggest thing still for Casario is two things. One, if he's going to move, it's going to be for a general manager job where he has control of the entire roster. There's no reason for him to go someplace else where he has the same situation that he has now, where he's got somebody above him that's making the final decision 
was on the 53 and on the 90 and things like that, especially the 90. That that doesn't make any sense for him. The second thing is is that he's either going to have to come to terms with the fact or get another team to agree to let him have the hands-on role that he has with the Patriots where he's another assistant coach on their coaching staff, coaching players at practice, being very involved on the practice field during the week, and then being in the booth on game day with a headset in the ear of the offensive coordinator, in this case Josh McDaniels most of the time, talking through situations and things like that. If another team, a lot of teams, you know, most teams, I would say, in the NFL, their general manager sits in the owner's box next to the owner and watches the game like a fan, right? And then they go down after the game, and that's when their job kind of starts from an evaluation process. But they're not actually heavily involved in the game day kind of activities of the coaching staff and of the team as heavily as Nick Casario is in New England. So he's either going to have to be willing to give up that type of control or that type of power or he's going to have to get another team to agree to let him do that as well. And then, of course, you're going to have to get a head coach that agrees to let him have that kind of control. And all those things are certainly uh, kind of uh, questionable or, or things that they would have to work out in negotiation. But ultimately, somebody will come along eventually, I'm sure, and offer Nick Casario the, a blank check and offer him everything that he wants. And he will probably leave New England eventually, but I think there is a chance that the Patriots will at least hold on to him through the 2020 season. With the 23rd pick in the first round of the 2020 NFL Draft, the New England Patriots select wide receiver. Oh, man. Well, I would love to say Henry Ruggs. I don't think Henry Ruggs is going to be available. My guess is is that Henry Ruggs from Alabama we're talking about here, absolute speedster, Great acceleration out of his cuts. Ultimate separation guy. Can use him in a lot of different roles. Runs routes well at all three levels. My guess is is that when he goes to Indy at the end of February and runs in the low 4.3s, high 4.2s, he's going to be off the board in the top 15 picks. So I don't think he's going to be on the board. If he's not on the board, it gets interesting with the kind of next tier of players because LaVishka Chenault from Colorado. That's the one I'm very intrigued by. Is an excellent prospect, right? But he's got a lot of Nikhil Harry in him. And I don't mean that as a diss to either him or Harry. I just mean that... He's a duplicative player. Right. Strengths and weaknesses are very, very similar. Now, every player is a little bit different, certainly. But Chenault is a size-speed combination, an explosive player, fantastic with the ball in his hands, a do-it-all, versatile weapon, but he doesn't necessarily win against press coverage or win consistently on the boundary on the outside as just this ex-receiver that's just going to run routes against man coverage. That's not really his game. At Colorado, a lot like Nikhil at Arizona State, they moved him everywhere. You know, he's playing outside. He's playing in the slot. He's playing some H-back. He's playing some tight end, stand-up tight end. He's playing some wildcat quarterback. You know, literally every part of the offense that you can think of besides the offensive line, Chenault played at Colorado. And that kind of role is awesome in the college game. It can be used as like a package, you know, like a, a certain package for a couple of plays a game in the NFL game. But like we saw with Nikhil, you have to be at this level, you have to 
be consistently good at running routes from somewhere, uh, from some alignment, whether it's the slot or it's outside. If you're going to be a receiver, that's really going to be a difference maker for your team. You can't just be a gadget player. You can't just be a guy that needs to be schemed open or thrown screens or be kind of gadgety. You can be that guy for five, ten plays a game, but to play 60, 70 snaps a game and have a thousand yard season and do all those things, you got to be able to do some other things consistently well. And I think Chenault is the type of guy that, like Nikhil, has had struggles against press coverage. His press releases need some work. His, But in, more importantly, I think for the Patriots, his work at the top of the route is a little bit raw. His ability to create separation at the top of the route is there because of his explosiveness, but his technique and his footwork and his setup into those routes and his ability to really kind of set up defensive backs and manipulate them and work off of them to get open against man coverage and the timing of those routes, he tends to drift up the field a little bit sometimes on some of his horizontal cuts things like that those little details are not really well refined yet for him and I think the biggest reason why similar again to Nikhil is that in college he could just out athlete everybody he was bigger faster stronger than most of the guys that he was playing against so they were just finding ways at Colorado to just get the ball in his hands and let him make plays because he was that dynamic as a ball carrier and after the catch or even just getting direct snaps as a quarterback and things like that that they could just scheme ways to get him into space with the ball in his hands and let his athleticism shine in the NFL everybody's an athlete everybody's fast everybody's big everybody's physical and you you can't get away with that as much uh you know one uh because I'm pretty sure LaVisca Chenault is a player that a lot of Patriot fans probably didn't get a chance to see out in the Pac-10, uh, a Pac-12, uh, with sure. Colorado. Uh, but everybody, every Patriot fan who's a, you know, college football fan or follows it to some degree knows who T. Higgins is from Clemson. Yeah, T. Higgins is a really smooth operator. You know, I was really impressed by his tape when I watched it earlier this week or, or really late last week, maybe it was. It all starts to kind of melt together. But uh, watching T. Higgins, his type of receiver, similar to Chanel, is not usually my cup of tea. They're very different players, but I'm just saying their kind of style. Uh, a guy that is six foot four. Super, super long and lanky, has the ability to make adjustments and create catches outside of his frame and go, has a massive catch radius, can work the sideline and tiptoe and, you know, put his feet down on the, on the inbounds and reach out of bounds to catch the ball, high point the ball, do different things like that. And a lot of his catches and a lot of his opportunities come in contested catches situations because he's not a burner. He's He's not an elite separator. And when I say those words, I know the Patriots fans that are listening are going to say next, right? We don't want any more guys that can't yep. create separation, right? But then I watch the tape and I watch T. Higgins work against some really good competition in the college football playoff and other big games at Clemson. And the one thing that he can do really, really well is he releases at the line of scrimmage extremely well. And when he plays some of these better teams that have better defenses and better defensive backs and secondaries, they do play a little bit more man coverage. A lot of the college game is zone, right? We're dropping into zone coverage. We're keeping everything in front of us. We're soft zone. We're letting guys get free releases at the line of scrimmage. And we're giving up some of the stuff underneath to limit the big plays. You do that when you don't have the bodies. You don't have the horses to play man coverage. Teams like Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, uh, Georgia, you know, go right on down the line, LSU. Uh, those teams can play a little bit more man because they have the guys to do it. 
So when you watch T. Higgins play against man coverage, especially press man, his releases at the line of scrimmage are really smooth. He does a great job of setting up angles and setting up little avenues for him to get off the line of scrimmage and create a little bit of separation early on in the route, get guys on his back so that he can go ahead and use that catch radius down the field. So a lot smoother at the line of scrimmage than I thought he would be. He also has that ability in the red zone, of course, to use that big frame and that long, uh, those long arms to make catches and battle through contact and do those types of things that result in touchdowns. So again, you're not usually my cup of tea, but a guy that I ended up liking a lot more than I thought because his skill at the line of scrimmage and his ability to set up defensive backs in his releases and in his route stems was a lot better than I expected. Speaking of the big game, that is coming up this Sunday and you can still get in on a ton for wagering action. How long will the National Anthem go? Will there be a wardrobe malfunction? We remember that, Evan, don't we? Several years (laughs) ago. How many yards will Patrick Mahomes throw for? There are literally hundreds of props to bet on before the game even starts. Head on over to betonline.ag. Use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit and get in on everything about the big game. Bring the playoffs home with our exclusive sportsbook partner, Bet Online. Well, the big game is finally here, talking all things Super Bowl 54 now with Evan Lazar of clnsmedia.com. Uh, this matchup doesn't surprise me. I thought uh, the Chiefs, for the last, I don't know, uh, third of the regular season was the best team in the AFC, even better than Baltimore, and that proved to be the case. This comes down to Pat Mahomes against the San Francisco defense, if you ask me, Evan, and I think um, whoever wins that battle is going to win Super Bowl 54. Fascinating matchup, too, because it's the best defense in the league at limiting big plays against the best big play offense that we've seen in a long time in the league. And I agree with you. I think that the Chiefs really, since the beginning of last year, obviously Mahomes kind of exploded onto the scene. They were going to make a Super Bowl at Patrick Mahomes as a quarterback. You know, like it wasn't, there was no way that he was going to go his entire career without playing in this game. Now, maybe it's a little bit of a surprise that it's happened so quickly for him, but it's certainly not a surprise to see him in this spot at any point in time. So I really think that the fascinating matchup, though, is the Chiefs passing game against the Niners pass defense. The biggest reason why is because of the types of coverages that San Francisco plays to combat some of the vertical stuff that Kansas City does with Tyree Kill and their other receivers. You know, the Niners are a primarily zone-based defense. They play that Seattle cover three. It's a, a cover three, usually cover three, just straight match cover three. Uh, some cover three buzz, which is a kind of like a robber type coverage. But basically with the match cover three, anything past 10 yards becomes man coverage, right? So if Tyree Kill runs a go ball, he runs straight down the side line 60 yards and Richard Sermon's across from him Richard Sermon is playing man-to-man coverage against him even though the rest of the coverage is zone right but if Tyree Kill takes his go route and he actually breaks it off into an in cut eight yards down the field that eight yard in cut now converts Richard Sherman into a zone defender. So now he's going to spot drop into an area of the field. So instead, what Kansas City loves to do is, A, they love to move Tyree Kill around all around the formation, inside, outside, and confuse defenses like that. I don't think San Francisco is going to match. I don't think that they're going to shadow these Kansas City receivers. I think they're going to let them line up where they want to line up. But the good thing for 
San Francisco is that what they're going to do with their coverage is those deep crossing patterns that we know that the Kansas City is going to love to run, the deep overs, things like that to get Hill, Hardman, those guys into space. They're not going to pass those off in the deep part of the field and zone. So they're not going to say, okay, there's a full speed Tyree Kill coming across the field. We're going to expect the safety in the middle of the field to change directions catch up to him and cut him off. No, what they're going to do is they're going to follow those guys like it's man coverage across the middle of the field and use the safety as a help defender instead of a primary coverage guy. So some of the things that San Francisco does with their match coverages, they also play a little bit of quarters and match quarters, which is similar just with two deep guys and four across instead of three across on the back end. And those coverages are really made and designed to limit big plays and limit the type of big plays that Kansas City in particular thrives on. So the question that I have going into this game for Kansas City and Andy Reid is what is he going to come up with? Because there are ways to beat that Seattle coverage. Every coverage has a weakness. Now the Patriots way of beating that Seattle coverage was two things. One, getting that that running back on that weak side linebacker, right? Because you're going to have a, a linebacker based off the formation. If you formation it a certain way, you're going to have a linebacker covering a running back in, in space on the underneath part of the field. So you can run option routes with that running back. You can run different things with the back and get him into man coverage on a linebacker. The other thing that the Patriots really did well against that Seattle cover three style is a lot of verticals, right? If you run four verts, it's the biggest, the oldest cover three beater in the book. And four verts is really what invented this match coverage. Bill Belichick and Nick Saban going back to the 90s with the Cleveland Browns, they used to get run four verts on them all the time because they played a ton of cover three. And in order to match that cover three, they used what's called Rip Liz coverage, which is this match that I'm trying to explain. And that is the way that they were able to stop four verts out of a cover three look. So I'm really fascinated to see what Andy Reid has up his sleeve because there's one thing I know about Andy Reid is that if you're predictable, I'm not calling the Niners predictable, but they're really, really good in their scheme. They're really, really sound. But they remind me in a lot of ways, tracks of like the Buffalo Bills defense in that yep. they do what they do, right? They're going to primarily play their cover three stuff. They're going to do what they do defensively. Richard Sherman's going to play on his side of the field most of the time. He's not a guy that flips sides very often. And they're just going to play their game. And against a guy like Andy Reid, who is a genius and a great offensive schemer, if he knows the coverages that you're going to run and he knows kind of what you're going to match and what you're not going to match, he's going to have something to beat it, right? And so that's what I'm fascinated to see is what is Andy Reid's trump card? Can he get them out of zone coverage and force them to play a little bit more man? And how does the San Francisco defense react to that? Is any kind of X's and O's schematic matchup? Now, the line of scrimmage is where it's, the game is probably going to be won and lost for the most part. Is Can that Chiefs offensive line block the front four of the San Francisco 49ers? The Niners, like Seattle, not a heavy blitz team. They're going to rush four most of the time, but they have four really good rushers. Uh, Bosa, obviously, DeForest, Buckner, Armstead. Those guys are all really, really good football players. So how can they block those guys up? But then also what's Andy Reid's kind of, you know, what has he got in that kind of script of his uh, for the Super Bowl that is going to beat Seattle's coverage system because it is a little bit predictable. Or, excuse me, San Francisco's. So here, uh, let me read you one stat. 19 carries, 69 yards. You know who that was? Derrick Henry. In the AFC Championship game, yeah. Raheem Mostert. 
You know what he did to everybody knows. I mean, anybody yeah. who watched the NFC Championship game, he had a uh, franchise record uh, 200 and some odd yards uh, against the Green Bay Packers. And I don't know how much of that was, um, you know, a ma- you know, just pure football emasculation of the Packers defense, and how much of it uh, was really scheme from uh, Kyle Shanahan. Look, Kansas City, I thought, did a great job against the hottest running back uh, in the NFL and in the NFL playoffs. Some of that was dictated by the fact that the, the Kansas City offense got rolling and Tennessee just couldn't keep up at the end. But uh, that being said, could uh, you know Kansas City and their front four or their front line, their defensive line, uh, repeat the same type of effort against uh, Mostert? Yeah, you know, listen, this is a much improved Kansas City defense from what we saw last year. And it's been a lot of the little players that have really upgraded this defense. Now, Frank Clark and the Honey Badger, Tyron Matthew, are deservingly so getting a lot of credit for their turnaround on defense. Matthew, in particular, has been one of the best defensive players in all football all season long and has really had a great season for Kansas City. But guys like Mike Pinnell, that's going to hurt Patriots fans' brains hearing that name playing in the Super Bowl and having a big role. Yep. Um, but uh, guys like Mike Pinnell and some of the unsung heroes of the middle interior of that defensive line have stepped up in the playoffs and had a much better kind of turnaround here with their run defense, which wasn't very good in the regular season and has been very good over the last couple of weeks. Now, the one thing I will say about it, though, is that the Titans running game has – Maybe I would say three or four primary concepts that they run, run blocking wise, right? But they're primarily a wide zone offense. They're going to try to get out on the perimeter. They're going to try to get Derrick Henry. They're going to kind of stretch play, stretch handoffs and get that offensive line moving to the outside. And he's either going to run the alley like he did against the Patriots a bunch of times, or he's going to bang it up in the middle and he's going to cut it back off the grain. And that's basically their primary scheme. And if you can be fundamental and you can be sound and you can scheme up ways to kind of stop that type of rushing attack, that really makes them play left-handed. They don't have a lot of kind of counters to that. San Francisco, on the other hand, has about 15 counters in their running game, right? They can run. They're also primarily a wide zone team. The Shanahan coaching tree going all the way back to Mike Shanahan Outside zones, they're bread and butter. They coach it better than anybody else. But Kyle Shanahan has 15 different types of running schemes that he can throw out of defense, and he's not just wide zone. Green Bay really loaded up against the wide zone and eliminated that from their kind of repertoire. They can just run just about everything at you, and anything that you kind of do to mitigate wide zone, Kyle Shanahan is going to have an answer for that and bang you somewhere else. And that's basically the biggest thing that you see with the San Francisco team that makes it so amazing to watch. And it reminds me a lot, their running game reminds me a ton of the Patriots running game towards the ends of last season where they were just so diverse and they're running so many different things at a high level. And then you also have to factor into the equation that they have George Kittle, they have Debo Samuel, and they have Emmanuel Sanders, and they have Jimmy G, who if you load up against the run and you play single high and you put eight or nine guys in the box and you really try to get physical and get big with the San Francisco offense, don't sleep on Jimmy G being able to pass the ball over their heads, you know? So this is a much different matchup than Tennessee, and I think it's a much tougher matchup for this Chiefs defense because of the schematic advantages that Kyle Shane 
Shanahan. And because of how good this Niners offensive line is at running a wide variety of different things out of different personnel groupings, fullback, no fullback, use check playing H back, playing true fullback, George Kittle's in the equation. It's just a much different running game. Okay, what do you think Jimmy G is going to do? How, well, I, everybody I wants biggest, to know what kind of Super yeah. Bowl is he going to have? What's he really going to be like under the bright lights? The biggest question is, is what does Andy Reid and the Chiefs defense try to take away most from San Francisco? Because a lot of teams have been trying to take away the passing game and a lot of the things that Kyle Shanahan does in the passing game. And it's left them vulnerable to run defense and that's why in a lot of ways the 49ers have been able to run all over teams in the playoffs is that teams are playing some too deep they're playing some coverages that are going to suggest that running the ball is a little bit easier they're playing without you know base packages without linebackers on the field you know only a couple or one or two linebackers versus having like a standard three four or standard four three and they've been able to you know run on teams because of that so the question is 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 the Chiefs defense going to put a base package on the field and dare San Francisco to throw the ball, or are they just going to live with what they give up on the ground? And that will, I think, kind of explain Jimmy G's Super Bowl. There is definitely an equation here for Jimmy G. If the Chiefs defense plays it a certain way schematically, that he might have to throw the ball 35, 40 times in this game, which is obviously a far cry from anything that he's done in the playoffs so far. There's also an equation where they run all over them again or they try to run all over them again, and Jimmy G is asked to just shine in a few moments, right, third down or a key fourth quarter drive or something of that nature, and those are going to be the questions of which way does that game plan go and can Jimmy G step up. My my gut tells me that this game is going to end with – the Niners running game really being the main thing and kind of pacing this Niners offense. But Jimmy G needing to come up with a drive late in this game where he's actually got to throw the ball down the field. Score? I think I'm going to go 27-24 San Francisco. I I don't know if Patriots fans want this or not, but I I'd like the equation I just kind of laid out here. I think that Jimmy G is going to have his, the ball in his hands late. I think he's actually going to lead them to a game-winning drive. Oh, and there will be a meltdown in New England if that happens. Uh, half half of those people melting down will feel uh, jubilant and happy for Jimmy G, and the other half will be like, "We could have had him as our quarterback." You know that's going to happen, right? Oh yeah, I just that's the way that this game sets up to me. I think it's going to be a close, high twenties type of scoring game, and I think that what's the ironic part of it is going to be that Jimmy G is probably not going to do much for three and a half half quarters and then he's going to lead the game winning drive and if he leads it successfully he might even win Super Bowl MVP off of one drive. I could see that happening. I like the Chiefs in this game and I believe it or not I think they're going to pull away late. I think they're going to win 31-21. I like it. You know, I to me as a Patriots fan speak from that perspective. I understand both sides of which one you want to be pulling for. I would love to see Andy Reid get a get a ring. I just think that the guy deserves it. His team is in the high every year. He's been in so many championship games. He's been in so many situations to get that ring. And he is a Hall of Fame coach. Make no mistake about that. He's I a agree. Hall of Fame coach. And he deserves a ring. He deserves it, you know, to get that kind of career accolade and get that monkey off his back. And now we'll just put him in Canton tomorrow if he wins the Super Bowl on Sunday. 
Well, there you have it. Two predictions for the big game this Sunday in Miami. want to thank everybody for downloading today's podcast and thank our terrific guest, as always, Evan Lazar. Follow him on Twitter at E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R. Follow all of his great NFL and Patriots work at clnsmedia.com. Also want to thank our great sponsors, Books and BetOnline.ag. For producer Mike Alonji and the founder of the network, Nick Gelso, this is Mike Petralia, and this has been the Patriots Beat Podcast, powered by CLNS Media. Hello, I'm Dan Lothian, host of the Behind the Media Podcast on the CLNS Media Network. Along with Jimmy Young, we dive into the biggest media headlines each week with honest, informed, and sometimes irreverent perspectives. It's not all serious. We deliver information and entertainment. As we like to say on Behind the Media, we find the interesting in media so you don't have to go searching for it. Listen to our podcast and get prepped for the next trip to the water cooler. Subscribe to Behind the Media wherever you get your podcast or find us on www.clnsmedia.com.